All right, and we're live. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of A Healthy Discussion, a podcast that facilitates open dialogue around contemporary issues without the fear of judgment. So joining us today is a very special guest. Uh, she holds a PhD in molecular immunology, virology, and inflammation from McMaster. She also holds a master's of education from the University of Western Ontario, and she currently stands as the assistant dean of the health sciences program at McMaster. Dr. Stacey Ritz, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, guys. I'm really, uh, really excited about our conversation. And um, another reason we uh, wanted Stacey to be a guest on the podcast was how outspoken she was on Twitter. Because um, a lot of the times we as students don't really think that administration really hears our problems or is aware of them. Um, so to see someone in such a, I guess, position of authority, um, not only recognizing, but um, taking steps to address issues that students face was quite a refreshing thing. So thank you again once for that. Um, and yeah, we can dive into our topic for today. So I want to start us off with um, what sparked our initial discussion. Uh, a tweet you made recently about a program promising students to get into BHSE uh, if they pay a certain amount of money. So I was hoping you could kind of expand on that a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly when I when I came across that particular website on advertising that particular service, it wasn't the first time that I became aware of this as an issue. I mean, this has been you know, people offering services or offering um, assistance to people to craft an application or coach their application or edit or give feedback or whatever, interview prep for different things. I mean, that's that's been going on for many, many years, probably decades really in one form or another. And of course the internet has enabled that in different ways than would have been mm -hmm. possible before, but it's, it's nothing new as, a, as an entity. Um, I think what really uh, enraged me about that particular offering was a couple of things. One that, three things. One that it was um, the, the prices that they were asking were just outright to me outrageous. Um, you know, the, the most expensive package on there was something like $18,000. Uh, and for that, that they, you know, they offered just a huge range of offerings and, and contributions. Um, and, and including things like setting people up with research opportunities or, or volunteer opportunities and that sort of thing. I had a, I mean, just the sheer price tag itself to me was just outrageous. Right. Um, but also the fact that um, the people that they had identified there uh, as being coaches or contributors or co mentors or whatever they called them were physicians. Um, I found that to be also quite problematic. I mean, I've seen lots of these kinds of things before where, you know, some enterprising person um, decides that this is a, a service that they can provide and make some money off of. But, but this one was particularly um, staffed largely by physicians. And, and that bothered me um, that a physician would, uh, would make opportunities available or facilitate connections for people to those kinds of research opportunities or clinical uh, internship opportunities or, or something for money um, and for a lot of money. I, thought, I, I think that is really ethically problematic. Um, I mean, I think it's ethically problematic really for anybody to do that. Um, but I think especially for a physician, um, I, I don't personally, I don't think that's consistent with the, the sort of moral ideals of, of what we think a physician ought to be. Yeah. Um, and another thing you mentioned that it's undermining a lot of the fairness, but another aspect that we sort of um, found was that it's also undermining fairness for the the population because now they don't have um, people to serve them who understand their needs or who've been in their shoes. Yeah. Um, I mean, the question about fairness, I think, is, is really what it boils down to. That's really, I mean, that's what outrages me. That's what outrages everybody. Mm -hmm. It's not fair, right? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and people have a very, I mean, I think human beings generally have a very strong desire for fairness, but especially um, in, in, cultures where we have kind of this sense of um, individual uh, achievement and meritocracy and we want we want these sort of sorts of things to be based on um, ability and talent and, and 
intrinsic um, uh, abilities of, of the person, um, it, you know, we, we, we become especially, I think, sensitized to the idea of fairness. I mean, the idea that somebody can subvert this process um, and, and secure a, a limited a spot in one of these limited programs by because they have access to money uh, because they have access to particular resources that that facilitate that is is frustrating for a lot of people including me i think what these kinds of services do i mean in some ways they kind of almost take away some of our focus from some of the actually much more widespread and problematic elements that contribute to uh, to, to unfairness is that you know we, we can get mad about these services that take your money and, and offer to help you with this but but the fact of the matter is there are all kinds of things operating in in the socioeconomic political realm um, that undermine that fairness um, you know we know for example that there's a very clear uh, recognition that you know academic achievement is heavily influenced by socioeconomic status um, uh, and that that there's actually a number of different mechanisms through which that operates but when we're talking about access to educational opportunities or scholarships or anything like that where academic achievement is one of the factors that gets used um, we like to think it's a meritocracy. We like to think it's who's the best student, who's the hardest worker, who's the, you know, who's who's the most talented. But it's not simply that. I mean, talent and hard work do have something to do with it. But also, you know, someone who has access to opportunities because of where they live, or the connections that they might have through parents or families, or whether or not they have to work and undertake paid employment or not, whether their families can offer them tutoring services. Um, there are any number of, of factors like that that, un, that that interact with talent, that interact with ability, um, and, and mean that academic achievement, for example, is not a perfect measure of what we, we would like it to be. I think we often treat academic achievement as if it's a, a measure of um, ability, um, but it's not. Ability is only one part of what that's measuring. And I think that's part of the, the disconnect and part of the frustration of any admissions process is that really anyone who's seriously engaged in, in admissions um, in higher education knows that. Absolutely, they know that. And that's partly what's so frustrating um, is that we, we, don't, we don't have good solutions for that. Um, I don't know. I don't know of anyone who has a great solution for that. If we did, we'd all be doing it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Just because it's not, uh, I guess, wrong for people who can access these resources to access them, but it becomes wrong when, when, or at least from what I'm getting, is that when other people cannot access those same services, when the playing field is already starting off unequal. Yeah, I agree. I mean. Well, I, I think I partly agree. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly I think, yes, we already have an unequal playing field, even without these paid services. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there are various things we can try and do to balance that, but there, most, most of those are not within the, the purview, not within the, the domain of control for somebody like a, an individual program to say, you know, we're going to address poverty so that we have yeah. an equal playing field. Like that's just not something we can do at the, at the admissions level, at the programmatic level. Um, but so we already know that there is an unequal playing field. Um, and then you add these kinds of paid services to it and it just tips tips it even further in favor of those who already have access to resources. Those who have get more. Um, and I would say, you know, part of, part of the question is, I guess there's two, two pieces of this, you know, what, what are the ethics around offering these kinds of services? What are the moral obligations of those people versus uh, using them? You know, how much do we blame the people who are using them? And how much do we blame the people who are offering them? Uh, and I mean, I think there's, there's plenty of, of blame to go around. There's plenty of ethical, <laughs> um, quagmires that, you know, I think, I think we can say, um, it's both, it, it, it's both. And I think, um, just to piggyback on, on what both of you said, there's a study that I found that I really 
like touches on that. Um, it's a study by Khan and all. Um, it, said, it touches on, so it said a total of 1,388 students, um, medical students, uh, responded to the survey, uh, representing about 16.6% of the total applicant pool. And 62, 62.9% of the respondents grew up in household income over $100,000. Yeah. Um, and one of the conclusions of the study was that Canadian medical students have different socioeconomic characteristics compared to the Canadian population. Collecting and analyzing these uh, characteristics can inform evidence-based admission policies. So it's really interesting to find that these companies are playing on that exact string and really tipping the, the balance and really skewing the data. But I want to know, because we always mention, oh, it's unfair, it's, it's whatever, so on. But I think one of the things I really want to talk on is... Um, what exactly makes it unfair? Like what about these specific programs that make them unfair? Because on the one hand, um, let's just play two scenarios, right? Um, and I, we mentioned that before, but I, I want to bring it up to, to the audience. But if you have person A that doesn't have the family connections, um, doesn't have anybody in the field, but has the resources, why are they not allowed to access these resources and are, I guess, discriminated against compared to person B who might have the connections like, without them asking for it, but don't pay for it. And yet they don't, I guess, um, they're not held responsible for these things. So how can we really equalize and say um, we're fair by just discriminating against the people that have the resources? Yeah, uh, lots, lots of meaty stuff in there. Uh, right. I mean, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in on that last point. You're, I mean, you, you raise a good point that, you know, this fairness issue and this access to coaching and resources and everything uh, for for paid through paid companies or paid consultants or is really not they're not the only part of the problem right like a lot of that kind of stuff happens informally um through personal connections and no money is exchanged and and it's 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 not it's not quite the same um mechanism it's not quite the same framework in which it happens but but it happens and and i think that the study that you cited by Canada, i i know that i'm pretty sure i know the study that you mean um, yeah, and it's been it's been well established for many years that, and it's not. I mean, I think that one was looking at Canadian or Ontario medical students, but mm. I mean, it's true. It's true everywhere they've done it. Basically, is that if your parents are physicians, you're more likely to end up a physician. If you're, right. and, but also if your parents are, um, yeah, if you come from a, a family of origin with with more socioeconomic resources, you're also more likely to end up in professional school and so on. And that's not necessarily because those people are paying consultants to get you into med school. Um, mm -hmm. um, but, it, you know, there are multiple layers there. It's partly about role modeling. You know, if you grow up in a house with physicians, then you, you know, you start to think that might be something you'd like to do. Um, but it also means that you have a clearer idea of what that field entails so that when you actually go to apply for it, uh, even, you know, as a completely, perfectly, perfect ethical candidate, um, you probably have an advantage in the interview process when they ask you about X, Y, or Z, about why do you want to be a physician? Well, you have an inside look at what it really is like to be a physician. You're probably going to be able to give better answers to that than someone who's, you know, maybe a first generation person who's come to university and, and just doesn't have the same level of exposure. Um, that doesn't mean that that person, that person whose parents are physicians, you know, that they've done anything wrong, that they've cheated in the process. But it is, it's part of this unequal playing field. It's part of what creates that disparity in the first place. Um, and so I think one of the things that we all need to do, any of us who have responsibilities and admissions for these kinds of programs, is to, you know, to be, have a heightened awareness of how those kinds of factors play into relative success or, or difficulties and challenges and barriers and, and try and um, try and implement and adapt our systems of selection to, to minimize the advantage that that kind of thing gives to an applicant or to, or to find ways to offset the advantage that that might give to an applicant who has access to those kinds of things as opposed to those who don't. Um, and again, I mean, anyone I know who works, you know, and makes admissions a serious part of their, their work um, does know that and, and does strive for that. Um, but again, it's, it's a super, it's, it's easy to identify the problem. Um, it's much more difficult 
to know what to do about it and how in, in ways that are actually effective to achieve the goal. I mean, we can put, we can do lots of things, um, but whether or not that actually translates into achieving the goal um, it is, a, is a completely different, uh, completely different challenge. I mean, for example, I, from the Bachelor of Health Sciences perspective, um, like one of the things that we do in our admissions process to try and mitigate against that difficulty, against that challenge of people having differential access to impressive opportunities, um, mm -hmm. is that we, we do not take extracurricular activity into account in our admissions process. And lots of times, you know, every, every year when we get, you know, fall fair and uh, the Ontario University Fairs and the open houses and everything where we have applicants come and their parents and are asking us about their our admissions process. Every time we get asked a lot about, you know, what about all of our extracurriculars? There's no place in your application for us to list all of the things that our very impressive son or daughter has done. <laughs> um, and how are you going to know how great they are if you don't have a list of all of their achievements? Um, uh, and my answer to that is is always that that we deliberately have chosen not to use extracurricular activities because there are so many things um, impinging on people's access to those kinds of opportunities. So, for example, you know, for people who uh, are growing up in rural environments or remote environments, you know, maybe there's maybe there's no university anywhere near them. Maybe there's, you know, maybe the only volunteer opportunities available in their small town are things like coaching the hockey team or, or teaching Sunday school and, and as compared to someone who's living in, you know, downtown Toronto and has like four universities within the, within a, a quick subway ride where they can volunteer in a lab and they can, you know, right. uh, and, you know, someone who's, whose dad is a professor and, and can, you know, facilitate them getting those kinds of uh, connections or even not even, even if, again, even if no one acts, behaves in any kind of questionable way, you know, if I think about my own kid, you know, I'm a professor. My own kid grew up in a house with a professor. It's probably in his mind somewhere that if he wanted to, he could go and volunteer at a university. Not because I told him that, not because I've encouraged him or because I put him in touch with somebody. He just knows from growing up in a house with me that this is something that happens. And so he's probably more likely to think, hey, you know what, I'm really interested in this. I'm going to go see if I can get a position at the university doing it. As opposed to someone who's a first-generation student, never had any of that, might not even their mind, I guess. within their realm of possibility. That's something that they could do. So it's, it's not even just about people acting ethically or not. It's, it's just about um, the, 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 the ways that our social location uh, and our privilege um, lays out a landscape of opportunity for us um, that is, even if we are behaving completely ethically, is going to be different for, for, for different people um, in ways that create advantage and disadvantage. And then when you layer on these additional questions about ethics of using these kinds of services, you know, that, that becomes even more um, skewed. Yeah, exactly. So one of the things um, that you mentioned was just some people just might not even be aware of these opportunities. And um, one of the solutions that we came across in our research was um, something that we talked about before, which was basically transparency, um, which where the programs or sort of the higher education institutions could sort of provide all the information in an accessible manner to anyone, not just people who have those parents as professors or are aware of opportunities. So is that something that you have personally looked into or maybe, uh, or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, as I said before, like it's not, it's not that, you know, this most recent <laughs> issue was my first time being exposed mm -hmm. to what I had thought of it before and been frustrated about it before. And, but this one, I think because it was so egregious it, it galvanized me maybe a little bit more than some of the previous ones. Mm -hmm. um, and, and one of the things that um, I think we, we could probably start figuring out how to do is to create resources and opportunities for people to get 
that kind of information straight from us for no cost, right? Uh, if we can sort of try and um, limit the market for those kinds of uh, services in the first place by offering those services for free. Um, uh, not to say that, I, I mean, I don't think we'll ever be in a position of saying, you know, we'll, we'll review and give you feedback on your, on your written uh, SEPA or anything like that, but to have workshops or have videos or have Q and A's or have, you know, student outreach um, where we can, um, we can directly speak to those students and speak to those applicants and, and give them that information ourselves. Uh, I think one of the, again, one of the things that irritates me so much about the ones that I've seen where they offer to uh, assist with the BHSC application process is how often I see these services saying things like, you know, we've got the inside secret track on how they do this, you know, how, and, and I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> there is, I mean, there, there is no inside secret track. Like we, we, we are, pretty upfront with people about how the process works. And, um, you know, there's no secret, <laughs> there's no secret thing that you, if you do this, you'll get in, or this is what they're really marking for, not at all. Um, and, and so I think if, if, if we can be more um, direct, I think about communicating that message that, you know, um, you don't need to spend your money on these things. Like they are not gonna tell you anything you know, more than what we are already telling you. Yeah, I feel like um, from a student's perspective, um, me personally, I've noticed that a lot of the people, at least from my high school, I went to high school in Hamilton, um, small high school, and a lot of the people, they don't even need like how you were suggesting that we could review sub apps, we can never do that, stuff like that. It's, it's even more basic than that. They don't even know that they have to write a sub app or they don't even know that they don't really need the extracurriculars or volunteering at a hospital or any of these things. I feel like just even a baseline sort of hearing it from the horse's mouth almost rather than having to do the research on their own yeah. would substantially help people in those smaller areas or who may not have that community around them. Because yeah. say I've, I've made friends in the program from other high schools from Toronto and bigger ones who consistently place a large number of students, they would know instantly that, oh, you don't need the volunteering. Um, you don't necessarily need the highest grades. You just need to be, let's say, authentic or, or, or write a great sub app. Whereas um, students from my high school were completely unaware of um, how to go about it and had to do all the research on their own. So I think just a universal like um, baseline for everyone, yeah. would, even that would be like more than enough as a starting point. That kind of informal word of mouth. I've, I've heard that this is what you need to do to get into health science. I've heard that this is what you need to do to get into medicine. I mean, again, there's nothing new about that, but it's certainly taken on a, a, a different and a larger role I mean, since in the last 20 years, you know, mm -hmm. everyone who's on the internet and all kinds of forums on the internet where you can, you can find all kinds of yeah. <laughs> to uh, I've seen some pretty ridiculous things on the internet, uh, people making claims about, you know, how admissions work in HealthSci or what, you know, what you need to do uh, to get into medicine. I remember seeing one a few years ago and I think it was a Reddit thread, but I can't remember. It was on some forum anyway that was, you know, students who were preparing for med school interviews in Ontario. And there, I remember one, uh, one contributor there had said, you know, I've got an interview at whatever medical school it is. And, and I'm trying to decide whether or not I should wear my wedding ring. Um, because like, I don't know, like, does it show the interviewer that I'm like mature and responsible and like, oh, wow. <laughs> or, or does it show like, or are they going to judge me for it in a bad way? And, and this thread had like hundreds of responses and people like really vociferously saying, no, you should absolutely not wear your wedding ring. And other people being like, yes, you should definitely wear your wedding ring. And I was like, oh my God, it doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> no one will notice if you're wearing a wedding ring or not. But, but I've seen that kind of thing happen so many times where a tiny little thing like that, where applicants, I mean, and I get it, right? Applicants for medicine or other, you know, competitive entry um, programs, you know, they want to do every single thing they can possibly do that's within their control to enhance their chances, right? And so things that, for, for people on the other side of the equation, people who are making the decisions and so on, and they'll say, oh, that doesn't matter, that's silly. Um, 
for, for applicants, they don't want to do anything that might inadvertently push them the wrong direction on, on, that, on that ranking list, right? So any little thing that they can do that might push them up the ranking list is something they want to, to do. And so that's what drives a lot of this, a lot of this really silly obsessing over, <laughs> over things. Um, uh, you know, similarly about people who are really worried about you know, they got, they got one, one bad grade, and I'm using air quotes there for bad grade. I mean, I've, had, I've certainly seen lots and lots of students over the years who have, you know, been deeply concerned that they had a B plus in, in a course and their medical school dreams are now crushed. Um, and, and I've had to address that kind of concern so many times. And so like, it's, it's not the case. Um, Certainly, if your average is B plus, that's probably rules you out. Yes, but um, but you know, a, a handful of, of non A grades is not going to kill your med school application. More broadly, aside from you know the the question of med school admissions themselves and what the standards are, if you think about um, the broader socio political changes that we've seen, economic changes that we've seen in that time. You know, we've gone from a period of time where having a, a, an undergraduate university degree was a pretty good um, insurance for, for somebody to, to get a good job that they could, you know, buy a house and raise a family and have a pretty good quality of life um, to a situation where, you know, having a bachelor's degree is just not a guarantee of that anymore. Um, the, 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 the economic realities uh, have changed. And you know, more and more we're seeing people trying to, you know, cobble together a, a bunch of small jobs to make, you know, enough money to pay the rent. And uh, we're seeing housing prices skyrocketing and people not being able to afford, um, you know, the, the standard of living that even that their parents had, had enjoyed. Um, even if they're actually working harder and doing more work than their parents had done have more education than their parents have had. Um, and so I think part of what is driving some of this you know, really emotional investment in medicine, <laughs> you know, as a, as a goal for many students, it, in some ways is just a craving for security, a craving for some certainty. Um, and, and I think, again, I think that's a very human desire. Who among us doesn't want to feel that we have nailed certain things down and we know that our basic needs are gonna be taken care of. You know, I know I'm gonna be able to pay the rent. I know that I'm gonna be able to pay for groceries. And, and I think now compared to 30 years ago, um, medicine is even more desirable in that way because, you know, it, it, you know, if you're a physician, especially if you're in primary care or something like that, where, where you know, your, your, your services are always going to be needed. There's not, never going to be a, a, a lack of a job for someone who's a family doctor. Um, and and you, so you know that you can make a reasonable living where you can buy a house and you can send your kids to university. Like, who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want that level of security? Um, so when people, again, when people criticize young people today for wanting to get into medicine for the money. I don't think it's because people want to drive Ferraris. I really don't. I mean, maybe, maybe a handful, but I think it's more about, I just want, I just want a career where I know that I can have that kind of security for my life and my family. And, and medicine is especially nice in that way too, because it's like, and I can do something that's meaningful. I can do something that really meets a, a fundamental human need. I can have that sort of sense of altruism and giving back. Um, so I think that is driving a lot of different kinds of behavior that we see in admissions process and use of these consultation firms and all that. It, it's not just about, you know, some kind of silly game playing to get into medical school. I think it actually is all part and parcel of a much larger set of changes in our society. And, uh, I think we'll be better able to address them and address the, address the problems in admissions, for example, if we understand more clearly that larger context and, and, and recognize that the individual players here, the individual applicants are 
doing their best to operate in the system um, as, it, as it exists. And, and yes, there are some things that we can blame them for. Absolutely, I think we can blame them when they overtly cheat. Um, but I can also understand why they cheat. I don't, I don't excuse it, <laughs> but I can understand it. Um, and I think we'll be better positioned as a, as a system to try and address that in admissions, try and address that in, in higher education, if we understand that broader context. And um, I think the raising of the bar has also sort of highlighted those people who weren't as fortunate or as privileged. And I guess admissions processes are trying to sort of um, keep up with that um, highlighting of, of those um, marginalized groups. Right. And I think um, you touched on a really, really important point about the whole economic shift and like the political societal shift. And a trend that I'm kind of seeing and we touched on is there's only so much institutions themselves can do. But before we get into, I guess, the cultural and societal change that is required, I want to get into that in a bit. But I think um, one of the things that this pandemic has really shown um, is the incredible disparity and inequalities um, present within some students and how discriminatory some of the um, admission processes can be. For example, we, we mentioned extracurriculars, but something that's like application fees and MCAT, um, being able to redo the MCAT multiple times, being able to take the prep courses and so on. So one of the studies that I found suggested that maybe universities can help and institutions can maybe help with uh, the fees and maybe refund some of the fees. But then it's like, how can we do that? And there's only so much, like on what basis can you do that? Yeah. So what, what would solutions look like in, in that sense? I mean, I think it depends to some extent on what exactly what your admissions criteria are. Um, so, you know, for med schools who are having people write the MCAT, I mean, that's, that's a, you know, there are some med schools who have said, you know what, we're not using the MCAT. And that's why, because it's a barrier. It's a financial barrier. It's a, it's a, so there are some, there are some med schools who don't use it. Um, at the same time, it, it does have a certain kind of value. Um, and I, I've heard, I mean, I'm, I'm, you may have you might have been able to guess this about me. I'm not a super big fan of standardized testing. Um, and, a, and of that, again, because I think it just creates this whole system of privilege and tips the balance in favor of people who can have the resources to become experts at writing a standardized test. Um, but um, I do feel some sympathy for the med schools who want to use it as a, as a sort of um, um, a standardization tool for offsetting some of the, the difficulties in using grades as, as their marker of academic achievement. Because, I mean, definitely there are some, some academic programs that have, um, have, have more demanding courses than others or where it's more difficult to get high grades than others. Um, and so someone who's in one of these very demanding programs, um, you know, they're 80 might be, you know, bet, you know represent uh, more academic achievement than someone's 90 in a different program. And so I can understand how they, they can use the MCAT to kind of offset that and say like, okay, you know what, using these two things together, we can get a better sense of, of what that person's academic um, inclinations might be. Um, so I don't, I don't love the MCAT, but um, I think so, some schools just don't use it. Um, th those that do use it, I think, um, should be more conscious about that kind of issue, about that cost issue. Um, for, I mean, for one thing, as you said, for the people who actually do apply, you have a disparity between the people who apply and only had the money to write the MCAT once and didn't have money for prep courses, and money, and people who apply and wrote it three times to get a better score and to prep courses along the way. Uh, and that's the piece that's visible. What's not visible is all the people who didn't apply because it just wasn't even, it just wasn't even on the radar that that was even possible. Um, so, you know. So I think, um, I guess maybe now would be a good point to get into the social and cultural changes that would be required. Because one of the things that I think about is equality versus equity versus social barriers, right? Because on the one hand, you have equality, which is everybody gets the same thing. Equity is let's equalize the playing field and make it equality of outcome. Um, 
But then it's like, what about the social barriers? Something that would come even before the admissions process and the whole application process to begin with. And like, I want to maybe get your opinion on what be some some sort of um, some sort of project or something that the government maybe can look at, um, maybe in conjunction with what the admission process are doing um, to remedy some of the stuff that are happening before the admissions and some of the barriers that some minorities may be facing. Yeah, I really, I mean, I really like your invocation there of the equity versus or equality versus equity versus justice. I usually the third step for me, I usually think of is justice. Um, but I've seen, I've seen other frames of it as well. Um, and I think that's really important uh, in this context. And I think generally really important in, in higher education to remember that. I mean, I know I hear lots of times people say it's really important to treat all students equally in order to make things fair. And, you know, I, I tend to push back on that saying, well, it's important to make things fair. I agree with you. But that does not mean treating people the same. Uh, it does mean a, accounting for context. And I, I think that's the, the big difference between equality and equal treatment versus equity is they're, they're both trying to be fair, but um, people who advocate for equal treatment think that that means the rules have to be the same for everyone, um, as opposed to people who have an equity perspective and say, no, um, we have to take context into account and, and what's fair for one student may be unfair for another student. Um, but the justice question, I think, is, is the one that I'm really most, <laughs> most interested in, is how, how do we, how do we uh, break out of the need for us to even think about equity? Um, because uh, really, we only have to think about equity when, when there is an, an inequity in the first place. So how do we stop those inequities from arising in the first place? It's clearly a project much bigger than the Bachelor of Sciences program. This is right. um, um, and I, I mean, I think it, it's it's a huge it's it's a social it's social change, right? I mean, it's it's social justice movements. It's it's about people engaging with democracy and, and change uh, in the in the way that we organize our societies as a whole. Um, and I mean, that can be really daunting, um, you know. When you start thinking about that, like none of this is going to change until the revolution comes, you know, that, that can make people feel really um, powerless um, and feel like just giving up. It's not worth it um, because it's too big of a problem. But I think, you know, if there's anything that we need to recognize and understand about movements for social justice and social change is that a, they, they, they happen slowly and in pieces uh, and it's there's like a, a and every now and then there's a convergence of of things that results in what we we recognize as sort of a, a revolution or a, a major change um, but it's not just if, if we limit our vision to those those moments of like massive revolution or massive change um, what we're ignoring is all of the little bits and pieces of work that happened along the way and happened to all crystallize together at the, you know, when the timing, when the timing uh, was right. And so rather than aiming for massive change, I think the, the better strategy is to say, okay, which pieces of this justice project am I going to work on? Which pieces of this justice project, um, you know, speak to my priorities, speak to my skills, speak to the things I'm passionate about, and how can I work for justice in my own way? Use my talents and my skills, um, and, and in my embedded in my context, um, so that I contribute to this justice project in my own small way, knowing that at certain times in certain places, opportunities windows will open up. Um, other times things will you know, converge um, and, and we'll see those big moments of change, but we can make those big moments of change when we are well prepared for them, right? If, if we only think that we're going to do that work when that change is happening, we won't be prepared for it. That's, that's what we see happening is we see people who are, you know, Black Lives Matter is a good example of that right now, I think. You know, if we think, I mean, go back to civil rights movements we can go back we can go back centuries and trace this thread right um, but what, what we're seeing right now in the current moment I think with Black Lives Matter is, is not people who are you know, we are seeing lots of people who are newly galvanized to this movement and that is important 
But really what's happening is that there have been people who have been working on this <laughs> for a long time and they're seeing a window of opportunity open up and, and that is allowing that galvanization to happen and allowing that to bring more people in. It's not just a spontaneous, it's not a spontaneous occurrence. It's the result of years of work that started small and lots of little things and then the window happened and there was this, people were prepared to seize it and, and do and take on more. Um, so I think it's, it's a really inspiring moment um, to be working for social justice because we can see that coming to fruition in those ways. And I think the big challenge for people uh, and for us as a society that the, is not to let that momentum um, wane without making some big strides here. I think, you know, it's very easy for these kinds of things to be like a, a big uh, social media explosion and then people kind of lose interest and it dies away without any big change. I mean, again, I think this is a a challenge to any social justice movement is that when there is that surge in interest and there is that surge uh, in momentum is to, <laughs> I hesitate to use the word capitalizing, but to capitalizing on that moment um, to, to, to galvanize concrete steps forward uh, so, that, so that you get that locked in before the, before the moment passes. Yep, exactly. Carpe diem. Um, and another thing, um, <laughs> and another thing that I'm sort of catching on is that this process of equity and um, barriers, all of this is a never ending process. And to me, it almost seems like um, the changes that we are seeking to make both in our communities and the ones that institutions are able to make are almost playing catch up to the injustices that are prevalent. So which, which almost leads me to believe that equity will always almost need to be in place, um, regardless of how many revolutions or how many strides we do make, because it's always going to be an imperfect process. I don't know where you stand on that, but that's just how I'm thinking of it right now. I, I agree. I mean, I think humans are imperfect beings, mm -hmm. and, and we're never going to agree on everything either. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, we can each of us has our own personal idea of utopia and justice and, yeah. and those aren't always going to be the same as everyone else's um so yeah we can we can work towards that as a, an idealistic goal but you know the reality mm -hmm. is we, we probably aren't going to get there certainly not in anyone's lifetime so it's always about compromise and, and smaller steps um, um and and you know certainly equity oriented work is probably going to be needed for for a long, 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 long time. Um, but I think the the larger project of, of social justice and, I mean, it's hard to imagine anyone, it's hard to imagine any human being who would say, no, I don't want justice, right? Everybody wants, it. the problem is that not everybody agrees what it looks like and what that entails. Um, so uh, there's, there's always gonna be that tension. There's always going to be a negotiation. Um, and context matters. Um, you know, where we are, what we are personally capable of. I, I mean, I think the other thing to keep in mind is that institutions um, are really in some, I mean, I think sometimes people look to governments and look to institutions as, as the change makers. They're not. Um, they change when people make them change, right? Um, they change because people change. Um, so I think we have to be very conscious of that to say, you know what, we can't sit back as individuals and say, you know, the government needs to do this, the, the university needs to do this. I mean, the government and the university are made up of people and they are responsive to people. And so these kinds of changes don't happen because universities or institutions do them or because governments do them. Governments do them because people demand it. Governments do them, institutions do them because there's a surge of, there's a critical mass of people who need it, want it, demand it. Um, so we, we, we shouldn't place too much faith in institutions and governments to fix these things. They will respond when the critical mass of humanity is there <laughs> to demand it. Um, and demand it, and sometimes that's in the face of, often in the face of competing um, 
interests. Um, certainly, again, in my lifetime, one of those key competing interests is around corporate corporate demands, corporate you know the economy as a as a as a partner or not a partner, the economy as an entity. You know that somehow we have to serve the economy um, and, and governments and and institutions responding to the needs of the economy as if the economy is you know the, a person. It's not. <laughs> the economy is an institution. It's supposed to serve human needs. Uh, and if, if, if this is, again, this is my opinion, <laughs> um, you know, if, if what the economy needs and what human beings need are different things, then I think we really need to stay, take a step back here and ask what, what, what the economy is for. What are we doing this for? In an ideal situation, what the economy needs is also what is good for people. Um, and, and again, we're never going to agree on that, but um, I think that that is some of some of the big some of the big challenges is 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 how often people want to cede uh, responsibility and authority to institutions and governments to be responsible for this, um, but and and certainly there are some things that institutions and governments have to do in order to enable it, like um, things like. Uh, regulations, environmental regulations for corporations. You know, clearly that's not something we as one individual person can do. But individual, uh, as, a, as a populist, government, we can, we can demand that governments do that. Uh, similarly for, you know, institutional levels, you know, like as an individual student, nobody can say, you know, well, I'm going to do a different admissions policy, right? Like, no, like clearly the institution has to do that. It's, it's within the institution's purview to do it or not, but whether or not they do it depends on the people doing the work to make it happen. Right, right. And so on the topic of government and social reform, uh, where do you see the youth uh, playing a role in this? I mean, again, people have always said kids these days. I mean, that's been a that's been a phenomenon since Greek antiquity that, <laughs> you know, this generation's not like our generation. And of course you're not, of course you're not. Um, uh, by definition, no generation is like the one before it because it's born into a different world uh, and different tools, different strategies, different realities that you're confronting. Um, and, and I personally find it really um, reassuring in, in many ways to know that the current generation of youth um, are the ones who are, are going to be taking the reins in the next few years because I think this world, I mean the pandemic has shown us, climate change shows us, the economy shows us, this world needs change. This is not sustainable and, and I think those of us in previous generations are, are in some ways too attached to the way things have been because it has largely served us well um, to a greater or lesser extent but um, uh, and, and I think that that is shifting. I mean, I think the, the world as it stands right now is probably not serving the, the younger generations as well as it served previous generations, which is, is gonna be a really significant motivator um, to make change that needs to happen, that needs to happen. Um, so, um, I, you know, I read this great quote the other day um, and it was from Hannah Arendt. And she said, education is a point at which we decide whether we love the world enough to assume responsibility for it. And she, the end of that quote is also, is the point at which we decide uh, to equip our children to hand over the reins to them and let them renew this world. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing there, I'm not getting, the first part I think I got exactly right, but the second part I'm not getting entirely right. But it, you know, it's funny because I, I, I saw that quote and initially I was like, oh, that's just so resonant with HealthSci. Um, and, I, and I love the quote. And I went and back and I read the article from which it came. And in some ways, it's totally not that. <laughs> but I still love the quote. I'm still going to use the quote, even if I, if I don't love the rest of the, the article. But, but this idea that you know, on some level, that's, that's what we need education to be. That's what we need you to do, is not to reproduce the world as it was, and not to prepare youth to live in the world as it was, but to prepare youth to live in the world they live in and to, and to renew it and to change it. I mean, I think I could sit here and I could say, okay, as head of the HSE, I could say, um, 
you know, no matter what we do in admissions, it's still not going to fix the inequity problem. So I'm not even going to bother because, you know, what we need is the revolution. Um, <laughs> I could say that, but I'm not going to say that um, because the fact is I can do things. I can't fix the whole problem, but there are things that I can do to try and move the needle a little bit. And so I feel that it's part of my responsibility to use my role to try and to try and do that e even in these small ways. If we make progress in all areas, we'll make progress everywhere, right? Um, we, don't all, we don't have to save the world with every decision we make. We don't have to fix all the problems uh, with every, in every moment. But if we, if we fix the problems that we are within our ability to fix, and we make small steps everywhere, then everywhere is moving forward. I really love that quote that you just said, we don't have to fix the world with every, every solution. And I think that's really like resonant with us as students because we were talking about, um, we're both from Hamilton, so we were talking about sort of almost mentorship and sort of just guiding um, other students who may not have these opportunities. That's like our little solution to this bigger issue. So yeah, I extend this to our audience too, if there's anything that they think that they could do to help. Again, it doesn't have to save the world, yeah. but as long as it contributes. And it doesn't have to be, you know, starting an organization or anything like that. I mean, yeah. I think that's the other thing. I see it a lot in the health side community too, partly because it's so tied up with the yeah. streams and stuff like that, that you, you need to be president of the thing or to count, right? Um, uh, but it doesn't have to be like that. I mean, every, every, little, every little thing matters on some level, which can be daunting and horrifying, but it can also be really exciting and liberating. Like even those moments of, of, of spontaneous kindness, even those moments of, you know, bystander intervention when you hear something racist or when you see something sexist, you know, sure, it doesn't go on your CV, <laughs> it but, but it matters. And, and if, if all of us make, and there's no way any of us can be perfect. It's not about trying to be a perfect human being. It's not about saying that we must do everything all the time. Um, but every time we do choose <laughs> to do those little things, Again, we move, we move the needle just that little bit. Uh, and so if we can choose to do that more often, again, we don't have to do it all the time. We don't have to be perfect. You know, we don't have to become the warrior and take on every argument. Um, but if we, if we do it one more time, if, if, we, if we do it a little bit more than we do, we get closer to, to what, we, what we know we can do.